Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I am joined with Dr. Norman Horn to talk about Faith Seeking Freedom, the final chapter. Well, I guess the it's, final it's the final chapter. official chapter. There's like <laughs> the acknowledgments and the we have this like little one-page what about. So, hey, yep. Norm, are you ready to finish the series that we've done the entire year? It feels like it started only yesterday. <laughs> but that's probably COVID, right? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is like a time warp under the, yeah, under the administration of Donald Trump and the pandemic era or whatever you want to call Somebody's it. Somebody's going to listen to this like know. 10 years from now and go like, what are they talking about? <laughs> yeah. So listener, 10 years into the future, if you do stumble upon this and you say, oh, huh, I'm listening to that. Send us an email. I'll send you a yeah. free copy of the, you know, fifth volume of the book. <laughs> the or whatever volume is the most recent, I'll send you a free copy. <laughs> wow, somebody's going to take you up on that. <laughs> right, but it has to be after September 2031. 2031. All right, yeah. all right. What do you know? <laughs> yeah. We might even, you know, if LCI succeeds, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe even send you something even more substantial than just hey, a free you know. copy of our <laughs> 100-page book. <laughs> Email us, see what happens, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I hope we last for 10 years. And if you happen to be emailing this to the past, that would be super cool. Maybe if you like invent a time machine or something. That would be amazing. Yes. So I'm expecting your email tomorrow. We are all in favor of time heists. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so we have this final chapter in Faith Seeking Freedom, which is all about Christian misconceptions of libertarianism. And it's a very, very important chapter, even though it's at the end. I mean, we <laughs> something like has to be the last chapter, Five right? pages long or something. Yeah. yeah. It's a very important chapter in part because I would say that we get a lot of questions. And of course, the whole book is about answering all these questions. But it's just this like, I don't know, like it's almost like people don't think libertarianism is what it is. And, and what I mean by that is... It can't is, be this simple, right? <laughs> right, it can't be this simple. Or, and Norm, this came up very much in, I think it was, what, 2015? You did the debate with Al Mohler on yeah. Julie Roy's show. Is that if it's not Christianity, if there's anything outside of Christianity, it must be considered an all-encompassing worldview. And so Al Mohler yeah. mistakenly assumed that libertarianism sought to define or have a worldview. Now, again if somebody were to go back and listen to that conversation, he was taking a lot of cues from Ayn Rand, who did seek to create an all-encompassing worldview called objectivism, which is not libertarianism. But why is it not the case that libertarianism is an all-encompassing worldview? Well, the simple answer to that is that it never claims to be one. Libertarianism at its core is a theory only of justice and about, in particular, the way in which we utilize the use of force in this world. And that's like the political means, if mm -hmm. you will. So it always has seemed to me to be a little facetious for anybody to even 
embark upon the claim that it is this kind of all-encompassing worldview. Is you could say, uh, hey, so is it a worldview? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say it's a worldview in a way, but like in the same way that like mathematics is a worldview, or economics is a worldview, or you know, uh, baking cakes is a worldview, or something. And you know that there are it's a view of the world from a particular vantage point, but yeah, but it doesn't claim all-encompassing. Yeah, and and it just, but it also seems like. As much as I am a fan of the idea of having a Christian worldview, and I think that's important, I think that we need to understand what that encompasses in and of itself as opposed to trying to like take everything underneath it. Now, I am 100% on board with, you know, the Corinthian mandate, you know, to make all things under the headship of Christ and whatnot. I get that. Like, Take every thought captive, if you remember that verse and, and whatnot. That's great. I get that. But that doesn't mean that every question one asks is a moral question that has a scriptural answer. And I think that's kind of the problem and where people get misled. And I frankly, I think that some people even intentionally, like Christian thinkers, sometimes almost intentionally mislead in this respect, and that's pretty indicting, by the way. I, I realize how that can sound, but I like remain convinced that like there are some people out there who want to make Christianity say more than it means to say. Mm-hmm. And in particular, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to take upon themselves sort of their own vestiges of power. I mean, it kind of sounds like a Catholic Church of old in some respects. Mm. But it's like, and the reason I say this is for one simple reason, really, and that's that. Like the Bible doesn't teach you how to bake a cake. Like that's something my father-in-law likes to say. And I think it's very apropos here that the Bible is not meant to answer every single possible question. Christian theology is not meant to answer every possible question. And so sometimes what we're looking for is not some sort of biblical basis for, you know, I don't want for something like, you know, the fundamental theorems of calculus, but rather are these things consistent with the way in which theology explains how, why, and what the world is for Mm -hmm. under God. And that's why I like to say that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought, you know, because it is not enough to just say, well, Romans 13 says, you know, powers that be are established by God. I guess that just just explains everything. As Mm. if that somehow gives you all the answers to policy, all the answers to economic freedom, all the answers to how a government needs to be run or something to that effect. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, in the same way that, you know, just because I can find out that, you know, there's a, there's, I can't remember it. So I think it's in Chronicles. It's in either Chronicles or Kings where there's a statement made about an idol or something like that, or a structure that's made that has a diameter of six cubits and a, and a circumference of, 18 cubits or something like that to where, you know, suddenly they say, oh, well, this clearly means that pi is now exactly three instead of 3.14. Or, <laughs> or like, this is literally in the Bible, folks. And I, I forget exactly what it yeah. is. So it's either it's Kings or Chronicles or something. But like, that's not how you do math, people. It's also you know? not how you do biblical interpretation. And it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's not how you do math. It's not how you do biblical interpretation. And so to that effect, I think it's incumbent upon us to kind of realize that that's the way this has to work. 
Right. The Bible isn't meant to teach you how to bake a cake. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good, like, summary of, like, why we can't expect things to carry the weight that we want them to if they're not designed to do so. Yeah. And when I became a libertarian, as I was thinking, you know, reflecting back on it, it's not like I was looking for an all-encompassing worldview. I was looking for a theory of government or a, a way of looking at the state or of social relations in sort of the questions that I was thinking about. It was very much about like, what do we do about social justice? Because the government and the state really do involve themselves in social justice or they have to have some, when I say have to have some relationship to it, that in my mind means get out of the way. But like there is a relation between institutions such as the state and individuals. And the best way forward in an analysis of institutions that I have found, of course, is libertarianism as the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. Like, as a Christian, if I'm thinking about politics, where am I going to land in the field of options that we have in my time? And that's, in my mind, going to be libertarianism. I mean, yep. clearly, that's what we're here doing. So, <laughs> that's what we're here for, yeah. So I think we've kind of answered that question as an all-encompassing worldview. And I want to remind listeners that this episode is meant to discuss the book's contents, a little bit of a behind-the-scenes, and maybe even an extended commentary to some extent. But the book is intended to give succinct answers. So maybe everything that we just said, you can grab something from it here and there. But um, buy the book, and you'll also be able to sort of, if you want to memorize it, that's cool. But you would have <laughs> succinct answers. We got, actually got an email this week from a uh, good friend of the show who said that he's actually used it to refer, to give it away, the book, and also to like refer to the answers to like have them in conversations, which is precisely the intent and purpose of the book. So that's really great. Bravo, bravo. Yeah. <laughs> so one question a lot of Christians have, and I can understand this based on, you know, perceptions. People perceive the way libertarians are or the way that some libertarians actually advocate for libertarianism or for individual rights or whatever element of liberty they seem to be promoting at the time or in the conversation, is don't libertarians think that greed and selfishness are virtues? And I'm kind of like, well, wait a second. First of all, we have to define what greed is and what yeah. selfishness is. And it's like, in my mind, I'm like, First of all, no, you don't have to think they're virtues. I mean, you you might be a libertarian who does think those things, but it's like, what Christian thinks greed is a virtue? <laughs> like, part of me wants to wonder, be like, do you really think that that's what I think? I mean, you know I'm a Christian, you know I'm a libertarian. Do you think that I'm somehow a Christian? And, oh yeah, by the way, I also believe that greed is selfishness or virtues. Yeah. Like, it's almost like a little, not quite, but a little bit of like disrespect or unthoughtfulness toward me as a person thinking like, I don't know, how dare you think I think these things? It's kind of my reaction. <laughs> well, you know, in part, I think this comes back to that little Ayn Rand question again, because what some people perceive as libertarian, you know, fundamentals per se are things that flow out of Ayn Rand. Uh -huh. And Rand even wrote a little booklet at one point called The Virtue of Selfishness. And I think that that is... Even Rand, in some sense, is misunderstood on that topic. As many people like to do, she was an early user of the principle of, let me use some incendiary language to get your intention. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's not like people do that these days, right? No, uh, no, 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 no. Never. No. 
<laughs> so basically, you're saying yeah. that the title, yeah. the book title, "The Virtue of Selfishness" by Ayn Rand, is a clickbait title. It's yeah, a it's, little it's, bit. It's a clickbaity title. Or if sure. you're at a bookstore, it's a pickbait title. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> but, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> but that's correct because what she's talking about is this idea of self-interest. You know, is not a bad thing, and for what it's worth, to an extent, she's right. And so what people sometimes mistake as this kind of selfishness with no concern for others, Rand really even goes into this idea of self-interest means that you don't get to just take advantage of others. You're the only way that you get to, you know, you look out for your own self-interest by, in a sense, serving other people in the marketplace. Now, she didn't use exactly those words, but the idea is that part of the reason why capitalism is great is that it allows for the harmonization of interests, or shall we say the harmonization of self-interest or the harmonization of selfishness. Whoa, who knew? Mm. So I think that the use of the word selfishness is somewhat misunderstood, a la Ayn Rand. That gets kind of translated into greed, which we know is a sin through the Bible. And we understand that to mean not the pursuit of something good for oneself, but the pursuit of one's own interests in opposition and to the detriment of others. And that's the exact opposite of what even Rand intended, let alone what libertarianism intends. Yeah. Well, another thought I have here is that, and this actually kind of dovetails into the question, don't libertarians seem to reject the sinful nature of humanity? And what I want to connect here is this. There's a sense in which libertarians are realistic about mm -hmm. the nature of individuals in that yeah. they are self-centered, selfish. Okay, they are goal-maximizing individuals, okay? We have goals, we have desires, we have needs that we seek to fulfill. And that isn't inherently greedy, nor is it necessarily selfish, okay? But we operate in such a way that it can become those things. And when you have market forces and when you live under a free society, that it basically channels those basic human I don't want to call them impulses, but those basic human facets into productivity. Yeah. Like if I want to be selfish, okay, I can be selfish. I can be completely about myself. I'm not going to get very far unless I have power. If I have equal power to you, then Norm, I can't take your Vespa, okay, unless I give you money for it or something that you want in exchange, right? And so it doesn't matter how greedy and selfish I want your Vespa, why do you want my Vespa, Doug? <laughs> Jeez. It was like the most random... I mean, talk about hitting it where it hurts. Oh, man, I'm sorry. No, no I was just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we just watched a TV show with my kids and there was a Vespa in the show. <laughs> I got rid of my Vespa two years ago. Yeah, I'm know, still buddy. crying over it. Oh. No. So, guys, if you want to donate a Vespa to Norman, <laughs> um, his address is <laughs> found on our website. <laughs> Not really. Anyway, <laughs> if you want to act altruistically toward Norman. <laughs> anyway, so if I want, but I basically, if I want to be greedy, I have to give you something. Like in some way, it doesn't matter to me that Jeff Bezos might be greedy. Now, again, that might actually say something about how he might do business and there's other issues and aspects there. But at a basic level that the people at Amazon have produced things that 
we get to enjoy in a certain way to a very high extent. I ordered something that I thought I was going to have to pay $130 for to get the original brand. And guess what? I paid $30 for it today on Amazon because there were other brands sort of basically with good reviews making the same products. Hmm. I'll tell you what it is off air, Norm, because you'll get a (laughs) real laugh out of it. But um, I'm able to have an enjoyment of life. So I got $100 worth of value still in my pocket, okay, because someone else was able to make something and sell it to me because Amazon exists, okay? And Jeff Bezos gets a little bit of profit out of that. And I'm like, okay, so he made my life better off. And again, I'm simplifying this as an example. It's not all, Jeff Bezos is not clear, okay, in terms of like free market, he's not a free marketer, okay? But he has utilized the principle of if I want to get rich, I have to produce something for society, for other individuals in society. So libertarians don't ignore that there's sin. It's almost like we're realistic about it. And we're like, we don't think that this can be just eradicated through new laws. Like we can't be like, oh, well, you know what? All we need is the right set of institutions and people aren't going to be sinful anymore. Like that's that's, that's unrealistic. And I think it might arguably go even farther. I think it actually is relatively true that libertarianism in some sense is the only political philosophy that treats man's sin nature seriously, if not in those exact words, but at least in practice. Yeah. And here's my why I would suggest that. And I don't exactly, I kind of lay it out this way in the book, but just not in these exact words. But the notion is, is simply this. The founding fathers like James Madison suggested that because men are not angels, we should have certain governing structures that limit their power. Libertarianism says like, doggone it, that ain't enough. (laughs) (laughs) Men are too bad for that. (laughs) It doesn't say like, well, they're too good and that's why they don't need government or something. It says, no, men are inherently corruptible. Yeah. Like Norman is not good enough to be placed in power over, you know, over the entire earth just because he knows best because Norman is a sinful man. Doug isn't good enough to be in charge of, of a continent just because he understands libertarian ideas or something like that. I that doesn't matter either. Bob Murphy's school of <laughs> economics. Therefore, I know how to control, run the world. Yeah. On the contrary, that would be totally against that which we say we stand for. And only libertarianism seems to acknowledge this. It's like a humble acknowledgement that we don't know how to run society. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a humble acknowledgement that we cannot run your life. Yeah. And like what other philosophy says that? Not conservatism, which suggests that you need to at least have some measure of of power in place in order to maintain order. Yeah. Or liberalism, which says that in order, or not, not liberalism, liberalism. progressivism, progressivism. They're not liberals. Modern liberal, whatever. The left. The left. The left that thinks that power is needed in order to somehow subsume other power or in some weird convoluted way. It's very strange. But like nobody says that. Libertarians don't say that. It says that you are the one who deserves to be able to run your life free of aggression. That's it. Yeah. I saw a meme the other day that said, I don't know which, it was, uh, the meme said, I don't know what you find offensive about libertarianism. Is it that you have to be responsible for your life or you can't be responsible for mine or something like that? (laughs) Or you don't get to tell me what to do. It's like, I don't know. It just, it seems to me that the, 
that the left especially right now and even the right when they're, you know, seeking out power is that they're the ones who are greedy with other people's lives. Yeah. Yep. I wish that people would just stop almost leveraging that question as if it's somehow like they're somehow indicting libertarians for having some aberrant theological view when it's utterly clear that the people who are asking these questions who come from like other types of political philosophies are so much farther and away in opposition to the way in which the human nature is presented in scripture. Like that doesn't make sense to me very much (laughs) because people seem to think that, you know, Oh, well, I can ping libertarians for this, but I don't have to ask the same question of ourselves. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> that's really important. I know that a lot of Christians who sort of are, most of them tend to be conservative, at least in the conversations that I've had, that their hesitation with becoming a libertarian or just sort of seeing it as worthy Adopting of embracing, the libertarian Adopting, thank you. Yeah. yeah is that they're attracted. They're like, oh yeah, that sounds appealing. And I'm kind of on board with a lot of this, but like there are bad people out there. And it just seems like you have this optimistic view of the way people act in society. And that, you know, people are just going to do the right thing without a law or do the right thing. And, And it's sort of like, it just seems like you think people are basically good. And man, I've seen a lot of bad people out there and people let break laws. Let's go after that for a second though. When you hear someone say, that sounds nice, but it seems like people would do this. It seems like, how do you know that? No, fair I point. would say, like, it's like, ask people that question, you know, our, our fellow libertarians out there, ask people, like, unpack that. Like, sometimes, this is kind of a meta point here almost to the book itself, but like, sometimes it's appropriate to let them unpack the problem themselves and then argue themselves out of it. They often can. Mm. You know, yeah. it's... <laughs> I once, I once on a drive home, all I was doing was ask, I was very tired and I was driving home from a Mises conference and, uh, I was very tired and I just was asking the guy who was driving with me questions and basically got him to answer his own questions about (laughs) anarcho-capitalism on his own. Yeah. I didn't have to do anything and that sort of stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, random note. No, and, it, and and what's interesting to me is that there are a lot of things that aren't going to be entirely different in society. Not like everything, but there are going to be a lot of things that aren't very different in society in terms of like certain types of outcomes. So um, I'm trying to think of an example. There are plenty of businesses that will still like exist in a libertarian free society, uh, you know, that exists now. There's still going to be, right, right. you know, there's still going to be some measure of, public works and whatnot. I mean, it's just, those things are going to exist. Right. I guess what I'm thinking more about, and this is a little bit more like the COVID era, is like people are worried about the state having too much control over our individual choices. And I'm thinking, okay, Mm -hmm. well, let's say there were no state. The possible situation at your employer could be that the employer, depending on the industry that they're in, can't get insurance because the insurance companies don't want to take on the risk of having to deal with lawsuits or some other things. Or there could be, let's take COVID out of it, for example, insurance companies might uh, not insure you because of certain activities that are high risk. Just general, like forget COVID in that sort of scenario. Like if you don't wear a seatbelt, then your insurance claims are higher. Like again, I don't know how they know you wear a seatbelt, but there's a lot of situations that 
the arrangement would be different and it would be more consensual, but the outcome would be very similar. It would still be, oh, we're going to wear a seatbelt or, oh, we're going to, we're still going to behave in this sort of way. In fact, I, there's a close friend of mine, every time they ask, well, how would a libertarian deal with this? Oh, right. There'd be this arrangement and there'd be insurance and the insurance company wouldn't, you know, like they kind of talk them, just like you said, they kind of talk their way into it, knowing most of the types of answers. You just work from consent and you realize that, you know, you still are going to get sort of the same things that you enjoy. So for instance, if you like the idea that bad people are going to get caught for doing crimes, well, it's just a different arrangement in a consensual voluntary society. It's just not, oh, I feel good that there's this thing called the state who's going to make sure the bad guys get put away. Right. Yeah, it's good to remember that so many of our regular daily interactions from, you know, our, our fundamental and really are fundamentally anarchical in nature. It's not as if, you know, we're constantly, and thank God that this is indeed the case, at least where we live now, and that, you know, recognizing that that can change and that COVID especially has made things difficult. But like, there's so many ways in which we operate in a very anarchical manner already. Let's just keep expanding that into realms where it may appear that the state has control, but absolutely can operate without that level of interference. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot of voluntarism happening outside the purview of the state, and we just need to expand that. Yeah. And this kind of answers another one of the questions in the chapter about, you know, libertarians sometimes, you know, seem to have simple answers to complex problems. It's like, how can you just say, well, the market's going to solve it? Well, that's not really what's behind it. That's not a simple answer. That's a shorthand answer. It's a shorthand answer to a complex problem. Yeah. And some complex problems do have simple answers. Some complex problems don't. You know, the point care conjecture is complex. (laughs) I don't even know what that means, man. (laughs) Uh, It's a complicated problem in mathematics. Oh, okay. And, uh, but that's a very complex problem. Well, anyway, that's a bad joke, I suppose. But, uh, some mathematician right. in 2031 who's just solved this problem laughed. But, yes. No. <laughs> but, okay, whatever. Anyway, but the gist is that simple answers often, you know, at least help us to begin the discussion that get us, you know, down the road the right way. So I, I think that, you know, there are plenty of complex problems out there and they're going to have complex solutions. Like, you know, Apple didn't build the iPhone in a day to, Mm. you know, to parrot a popular quote in a slightly different parodied way. But, you know, so it's not like everything just gets the Apple treatment in this regard, though. Anyway, I think that there's a lot of depth to libertarianism that people can explore in addition to the simple answers that help us to kind of see, pierce through the veil and see that there are means and ways of solving problems without the use of force. Like the simple answer to a lot of problems is let me just use force to get what I want. Yeah, I was just about to say, I'm like, or even to like to spruce it up a little bit. Well, let's just pass a $40 trillion stimulus bill. <laughs> just that's a, a very complex very, answer. <laughs> right, no, that's a very simple answer. It's like, yeah. oh, we'll just throw more money at the problem. I'm like, that, isn't yeah, that true. the left's whole thing? Like, yeah. oh, well, we'll just throw more money at the problem done. 
Yeah. We'll just we'll just right, pay just, teachers more money. We'll just we raise just minimum wage. We'll just write another law, you know. We'll just write another law. And so yeah, it's what you said earlier about, you know, apply the same analysis to your own political preferences, mm-hmm. you know, outlook and maybe the three fingers are pointing back at you too, right? <gasps> Who knew? <laughs> so, and you know, and the other thing is that <laughs> we put this near the end of the book as a little bit of a hedge for like the person who's kind of like, "Oh my goodness, you guys just think you've you know, created a whole defense of libertarianism in 124 pages. The, the world's more complicated than that. And we're like, yeah. yes, we know it is. That's not what this is about. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about having simple answers per se. We know the world is complex. Also, one of the reasons that the world is complex is because the state has made the situation complex. There is so much unraveling that needs to happen before we can get to anarcho-capistan, all right? (laughs) Or ancapist, whatever. There's a lot of unraveling. You know, there's a sort of like purist libertarian, well, here's how we would handle borders. And then there's the like, well, how do we get there, right? And you make this policy decision or you or abolish this policy or you have this sort of principled middle ground to get in that direction. And yet there are problems with those things, right? And there's compromises and... The more liberty approach is sort of possibly a more realistic approach. But the state has made things complicated because now it's, oh, well, we got this to handle. Well, if we take that away, then you got this problem. Well, that's complicated by this problem. You know, like I'll I'll give you one example here. We can talk about just basically that I've been thinking about is the current, uh, I don't know, whatever wave in COVID we're in right now or about to be out of, says the data, is the... um, hospital beds. And my first thought is, okay, well, that could have been prevented without certificate of need laws. Like that made it more complicated to have a simple freedom-based answer. Yeah. Because, okay, now we have fewer hospital beds because we weren't allowed to have hospitals. Who didn't let us have more hospitals? Oh, local municipalities who said, oh, there's, there's enough hospitals in this area. Oh, really? Says who? Well, we did. Okay. Well, like, I don't know. That's just really bothered me because you know, I've had to deal with a family member having to wait on an ICU bed. And thankfully, that family member is is fine now. But uh, that was a little scary for a little while. And so it's like, so that's why it's been on my mind. It's like, well, no, COVID didn't create the shortage, right? It might have been an artificial shortage. It probably was. Here's another example. And, you know, we've kind of inadvertently gone into this like 2031 looking back realm for some <laughs> weird reason. But it'll be interesting to see in 10 years what Afghanistan looks like. You know, the simple Uh, answer to the problem of, you know, our 20-year war in Afghanistan was presented in 2008 or, well, 2007, 2008. We just walked in. Now we just need to walk out. And that was, of course, the Ron Paul presidential campaign, which was very anti-war and rightfully so. And Ron Paul predicted that this is going to be a boondoggle, it's going to be crazy, and it's not going to work out well, and it will end up hurting a lot of people in the end. And lo and behold, a trillion dollars later, and thousands upon thousands of lives dead, both on the Afghanistan side and on the American side, you know, finally in 2021, well, there was a pullout. And Yeah. yeah, the simple answer was just pull out. But it's a complex problem. And in fact, it's totally legitimate to criticize the way it was done. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense of, well, you know, oh, well, it just shouldn't have been done. We should never have gone out. But like to literally just criticize the way it was done. 
It was the you right mean the thing way the to pullout do. had happened. Yeah, yeah, it was the right thing to do to get out of Afghanistan. Nobody would have done the right thing. No president, well, Trump, true, Biden, but- Obama, anybody would never have done the exact perfect way of pulling out of Afghanistan. But it's also entirely reasonable to leverage some pretty steep criticism at not dealing with it in the right way, not you right. know, leveraging the actual resources on the ground in a way that would benefit the people there. And I mean, oh, there, oh, totally. there were so many things that went wrong. So just because we, you know, as libertarians say, pull out of Afghanistan, we got to get out. It's the right thing to do. We should never have been there and so on and so forth in the same way that Ron Paul and libertarians have been saying for the last 20 years, it doesn't mean that we can't also realize that it's a very complex path to get out. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I have two thoughts on that. And again, this is probably not real content for the book, except for thinking about 2031 right now. So, yeah, right. <laughs> um, in the, in the long term, it'll be and it's something really to talk interesting about. to see what, what like 10 years from now, what it's going to look like. Yeah. So the first thought I had was Biden said, it didn't matter when we chose to do this, this would have been somewhat of the outcome in terms of Taliban taking over again. Right. And the second thought, well, I just lost it. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, well. <laughs> Maybe it I may be right. Oh, it may I know be what wrong, it was, but that's like well, it's and kind of immaterial. The though. reason I had that thought is that you know Ron Paul would have done that in 2009 if he became president, and mm-hmm. it would have been a boondoggle. It would have been a less expensive Maybe. one. Maybe it might have been, but it might not have been. It, like we don't know. Those are just counterfactuals, you know, that we can that we can try to well, argue for. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that no matter Actually, what I would, we did, it would end up. I think it's equally, well, well, it's kind of outside of the realm of the scope of this podcast, but I think it's arguable that it could have gone either way. Yeah, but Norm, we're libertarians. We like to debate hypotheticals and (laughs) outcomes and and decisions. (laughs) The Taliban is stronger now than it was in 2009. Oh, yes. That's a given. Yeah. Like, so I think it's arguable that it would have been easier to have pulled out in 08 or 09. You know what's not arguable, though? What is not arguable? Is that we have many people to thank for the production of this book. And it is true. Yeah. That was a hard pivot, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a real hard pivot. <laughs> so I think we're done talking about the contents yeah. of this book. <laughs> and for those of you who have hung in there for 13 episodes spaced out throughout the year, we really appreciate you listening and hopefully buying many copies of the book to give out to your friends and family and loved ones and pets and you know whoever <laughs> you can convince for the cause of liberty. And we tried to make it easy Yes, we've tried to make it easy. You can go to faithseekingfreedom.com. You can donate. Right now, we're still running our two for 20. So if you want to buy a physical copy of the book from Amazon, you pay $12, $13. Or you can donate $20 to LCI. We'll send you two copies, one for you, one for a friend, or one for two friends, or two for one friend. Two for one friend? Yep, sure. I mean, you know, one to highlight and (laughs) mark up, and the other to have pristine for giving to that friend in 2031. you know, to sit beside volume five or whatever we're doing there. (laughs) Uh, So to all of you who have sort of hung in there, we do want to thank you. And of course, we have many other people to thank as well. Norm, thanks for joining me for this episode for chapter 13 of Faith Seeking Freedom. My pleasure. It's been good to do this whole book, you know, run through, if you will, for everybody. And uh, I just hope that everybody who's, who has stuck with us for the all 13 chapters really benefited and from hearing certain things that might have be slightly beyond the scope of the book itself, but and I hope you're entertained. And do let us know what you think. If you have something you want to tell us about the book or something you would like to see better or something you think needs to be there or just to say like, dude, I, I really like this or really didn't like this, we want to hear from you. 
let us know via our contact page. Go to libertarianchristians.com slash contact and uh, let us know what you think. Or podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can do that too. That works too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. So, Norm, when I was thinking about dedicating the book, I've always wondered, like, if I partly wrote a book, who would I dedicate it to? Now, clearly, this is the first book that I've written, and it was co-authored, so I can't just be, like, dedicated to my wife. (laughs) Because I don't think I would have gotten the consent of the other three of you. But we dedicated the book to the people who asked us the tough questions and help us think through and, and sharpen our skills. So for those people, the people who may not even agree with us at all, but ask us questions, we we truly want to thank. But uh, there were some other people that were very important and in the production of this book and getting it out there. Yep. In my mind, front of mind is our advisory board and board of directors who enthusiastically supported our writing the book and promoting it and getting it out there. You guys know who you are, and we are sincerely appreciative of your participation in our organization. Awesome. And another person that I think that this book, in some sense, has a almost pseudo-dedication to on the back end, and she knows it, is our, our good friend, Dr. Mary Ruart, who uh, originally wrote the book that was called Short Answers to Tough Questions, probably about 20 years ago. And, uh, and kind of inspired this work. I've been thinking about doing this for, oh, goodness, probably four or five years. Oh, <laughs> much longer. I remember I was talking about this for many years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's been on our docket and something we wanted to accomplish for some time. And, and it seemed like, hey, it's the right time. So we did it. And it's now ever, now in your hands. I would like to thank Carrie and Dick for joining us on this. Oh, yeah. Because they just did a stellar job participating and being good comrades in liberty. I like using that phrase for, you know, subversive reasons, of course. But it's been a pleasure to have conversations partnered with them and guest appearances on other podcasts. The writing process with them has been good. We've had a good group chat going on Facebook. So yeah, yeah, there's just a lot of camaraderie going on there. And uh, we ended up with a really good team, which is a huge blessing. The process of co-writing is not easy. Yep. Few other folks that definitely need acknowledgement are our good friends Larry Reed, who is the former president of uh, Foundation for Economic Education, who's been wonderful to us and is just great. Our good buddy, who started when he was not on our advisory board at the time, he was still working with us. Eric Lindborg, he's now on our advisory board, and uh, so we're happy to thank him. He's been a huge help on it. And then a gentleman who's been pretty instrumental behind the scenes. Chris Williams. Chris is our podcast man. You know, he was instrumental in getting the audiobook out. His company's called Podsworth Media. Check him out. He's a good fella. 
And uh, who else, Doug? Well, I don't have the book literally in front of me because, and, and we spell out a lot of thanks and congrats and or not congrats, thanks and you know we're really happy for and thankful for a lot of people. But the last two people that come to mind is the team at Bellwether. Oh yeah, because not only were they enthusiastically in support of what we did, what we were doing, we had them do the editing, and they asked <laughs> they asked tough questions <laughs> about how we <laughs> worded things, about the length of the question, about the wording of the question, about the choice of you know phraseology, and are you sure people are going to get it if you say it this way? And so there's just a lot of you know we just start typing. Rah, 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 there he is, and it sounds good to me. And you know, oh nope, Doug. You need to word that differently. (laughs) Behind every good book is a good editor. Yes. I'm pretty sure that's a quote from somebody. Yes. Well, if not, it's a quote from Norman Horn. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) I know we haven't thanked everybody. Although I will say that there are two people that come to mind who read very, very early drafts. And so the first person I think of is your dad, who read an early copy of the book, gave tons of great feedback. And then Gregory Baus, who... He actually was the first recipient of the proof copy because I ended up with an extra copy that was <laughs> sent to me. And he happened to be in my area that day and was like very like divine providence that like we got to go <laughs> share a beer. And I'm like, hey, dude, guess what? I actually have a proof copy. You want it? You want it? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so like, and so he read through it and, and found just a few last minute edits before we got to you know send it to the printer, so to speak. Yeah for the final proof, but... Greg has always been a staunch supporter. We appreciate him. Yeah. Well, that's about all we can say for now. The official acknowledgements for anybody we might have missed is in the book. And I'm sure there's more people even there that we could thank because as we've learned from Leonard Reed, no single person knows how to write with a pencil or something like that. Wow. That was smoother in my could, head than it you, actually you came out. You couldn't have butchered that worse. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll leave it in because it's We're funny. We're leaving it in. It's funny. You learned it from Doug. Nobody knows how to write with a pencil.